Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 383. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show we have. We have two stories by UK writer Neil Asher. How cool is that? I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have a little short story by Neil Asher, Recopper, and it is narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. Then we have the main fiction, which is Memories of Earth, narrated by Anne-Marie Chowowski. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Before we get on, this show is sponsored by the fantastic, the one, the only, Octagon Technology, who are now supplying hosted exchange servers for solicitors and legal firms in the UK who need to use the criminal justice secure email. 20 years fixing people's computers. They used to drive to clients. Now they help you remotely across the internet. How cool is that? 1995, going on to 2015. Octagon Technology, helping businesses with their IT. Diane Clive, thank you very much. Now, again, before we get into the stories, just hold the reins. YouTube, just a couple of days ago, yesterday, in fact, I put up part one of Alfred Bester, godfather of science fiction on YouTube. Yes, and it's a two-part one. And it's just i'm just loving it man you know i mentioned it last week just kind of delving back into these kind of writers these lives and doing the research and then kind of getting the message out about it do you know what i mean and especially bester two books De- demolished man and stars my destined destination and what happened you know like the crucial thing what happened after that that's the you know it's a kind of pivotal point in science fiction history, do you know what I mean? If you're kind of into that, all that thing, and I'm just like just discussing all these kind of writers, you know what I mean? It's just I'm loving it. So please pop over and have a look at that. So like I say, the first story by Neil Asher is Recopper, and I'll give you a little heads up about Neil. Neil Asher lives sometimes in England, sometimes in Crete, and mostly at a keyboard, having over twenty books. Wow, go on, man! Publishing has been accused of overproduction despite spending far much time ranting on his blog, cycling off the fat and drinking too much red wine, but doesn't intend to slow down yet. Don't you dare slow down, Neil. The story isn't really, like I say, by the one, the only, Amy H. Sturgis. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present Recopper by Neil Asher. When the stealth boat rose on its hydrofoils, the wind and spray kept me cool in the bright African sun. I gazed back, 
and saw that finally the YouGov gunboat had given up the chase. Jansen grinned at me. We're in Moroccan territory now. MimTech initiated the first recoper in 2044, the year the National Health Police seized a 1,000-ton shipment of Argentinian beef burgers and subsequently smashed the notorious Midlands fried food ring, which was led, as government-approved blogs delighted in telling us, by the Yorkshire chipper. At this time, my wife, Jillian, announced the happy news that CCTV would be installed in our flat. She worked for CPHS, Camera Partnership for Home Safety, and had volunteered our place as a test bed. The recoper was Mohammed Azwar McDougall, and since I wrote his biography on Wikibio, Mimtech, never realizing their true purpose, paid YouGov for my expertise. Like every European citizen, I was a state employee, but being leased to a private company and actually generating wealth, I also became a societal asset, which meant filing notice of all my movements and work-related activities a week beforehand. This was heartbreaking, as I'd been about to suggest to Jillian that escape to North Africa on one of the refugee boats— It never occurred to me that there might be a connection between my work and the CPHS cameras in our flat. McDougall was a notorious libertarian blogger whose attacks upon the formation of YouGov caused much chagrin in Notting Hill champers and socialist circles. He was born to a Calvinist Scottish father and an Islamic Pakistani mother and in public claimed to be a Sikh though privately admitted this was so he could carry a dagger and didn't have to wear a crash helmet when thrashing his 1,000cc antique Ducati motorbike about the highlands. He started his blog, Invisible Worm, in 2008, with an article dissecting the then $1.2 billion cost of the British Olympics. Over the ensuing 20 years, he wrote over 8 million words, created numerous animations, short films, and video news reports, in all of which he never revealed his identity. His blog is huge, and even now I have not seen all of it, for its thousands of distracting hyperlinks make this a near-impossible task. Working for MimTech, I became hugely frustrated by the Byzantine diversity and equality regulation, which had become suffocating after I wrote McDougall's biography. However, MimTech, which we now know was a front for American-financed revolutionary group Free Europe, wanted the truth about McDougall and risked telling me their true aim. I loved the idea and obliged them by first providing the insipid and politically correct version, which I transmitted via email, next providing the real deal, which I put on a MIM chip and took directly to their office in Hastings on the frequent occasions they called me in to clarify some point. Foolishly, I told Jillian about this subterfuge, and on a subsequent visit to MimTech, Jansen apprised me of the reality. Once we've got all we need, we'll run the recoper and transmit it all out state, and he'll soon be a thorn in YouGov's side again, he said. Then, of course, we'll have to get out. I do have a wife, I told him. Yes, he said. The one who had home safety CCTV installed to keep watch on you, and who was directly responsible for the beady-eyed characters sitting in hydrocars outside. 
the one who was working for Europol before she married you, before she was instructed to keep a very close eye on a lonely nerd who'd had access to too much dangerous information. Then he showed me evidence stolen from a YouGov database, the frequent reports Jillian sent to her masters. I was horrified by the betrayal, but upon my return home said nothing and just watched Jillian carefully. I just could not grasp that her smiling manner and loving attentiveness were utterly false and that I had never been able to see what lay behind this facade. MacDougall was one of the last and most effective political bloggers Europol managed to track down. They sent him to the Milton Keynes indoctrination camps, and like so many sent there, he was never heard from again. Upon my final visit to Mimtech, Jansen revealed that they had cracked another YouGov database and hit the McDougal motherlode. Hundreds of thousands of private emails, psych and DNA profiles, tens of thousands of images. This, it turned out, was sufficient information to create a recoper, a reconstituted personality. Read a book, especially nonfiction, and you'll know something about the author. Opinion pieces, as found in blogs, will tell you more. Further detail can be gleaned from the author's responses to others, and from his diaries, and from film of him, and much of the organic structure of his brain can be reconstructed from his DNA. Utilizing all of this, Mimtech employed programs of bewildering complexity, programs even capable of making the distinction between irony and sarcasm, to build a model of McDougall's functioning mind, then kicked the whole construct into motion in a quantum synaptic computer. He began blogging again, right there on the screen in the Mimtech offices, soon tearing into YouGov's every madness. After Jillian's betrayal, I knew would not long have escaped the camps, and so via a long-prepared secret route, I joined the Mimtech staff as they boarded a stealth boat from the Hastings Shingle, some days later, when that boat finally slowed beside a jetty in Rabat Harbor, I considered how, when reading MacDougall's blog, one could not know that it was not written by a human being. But then, after my experience with Jillian, who was I to judge facades? <laughs> There you go. Like I said, don't forget, copyright is Neil's. Neil, thank you so much for this amazing, lovely little treat to have kind of two stories by your good self. And Amy just hits the nail on the head. Thank you so much. Don't forget, Ms. Sturgis is teaching this summer. I'll put a link on if you want to kind of pop over there and have a, have a look and, you know, take part in Amy's course. That would be fantastic. So next up is, like I say, the main fiction, Memories of Earth by Neil Asher. The story is narrated by Anne-Marie Chowski, who is a postgraduate in the Royal College of Music. She was a regular soloist at the Royal College with fellow student Alfie Bohr and has sung on Channel 4 and the Royal Gala performances on ITV. She's also a teaching, has a teaching practice and among her students are Laura Ma Malling, 
Marling, who won the 2012 British Female Solo Artist at the Brit Awards. Comedian Lenny Henry and UK Classical Chart number one, Rebecca Newman. Go on there, Anne-Marie. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Memories of Earth by Neil Asher The memories were vague now, still nightmarish, and still after all this time he could not quite piece together the course of events. The Greys and Mother had attacked just after they'd established the mining operation down on the surface of the world he had named Molden, just after the first proto-life drops in the ocean, and when they were building the first terraforming bases. It must have been watching, for it chose its time well. He'd just started expansion of the Rhine Dry Vortex Generator when the Grazen Ovoid slammed into the Vardalex. The Yig worms had quickly penetrated the ship's structure, and moments after that, Saul and his crew had been battling for survival both in the physical ship and the computer realm most of his mind occupied. They'd grabbed everything they could, including Earth's gene bank, and managed to escape just 400 of the 900 aboard. The hardware and bioware had been wrecked in his skull, but was just functional enough for him to send the detonation signal to a cache of thermonukes inside his ship. False daylight had marked their landing on Malden, as both the Vardalex and the Grazen Ovoid were destroyed in an atomic conflagration in the night sky. It reminds me of Earth, said Tina Chandra as she closed up her EA suit and walked up to stand beside him. Saul snapped out of his reverie and glanced across at her, suddenly angry. Then he calmed himself on a slow, wheezy breath, nodded obligingly, suppressing the urge to challenge that. How could the view through this panoramic window possibly remind her of Earth? She'd grown up in the Bangladesh sprawl, where the only real available views were of further buildings and the seething man-swarm, and no view she could have chosen from cams scattered across their homeworld would have showed her anything like this. Maybe polar ice or government-owned croplands would have been as uninhabited, but they were in no way comparable. But then her attitude was usual with many of the survivors, and especially the long sleepers like Tina. Whenever they talked of Earth, they always talked of a halcyon ideal that had only ever existed when life for humans had not been ideal at all. They certainly weren't referring to the nightmare they'd left behind. Blinking, weary eyes, Saul returned his attention to the scene before him. The sky looked like nougat, striated in pink and white and marbled with pale, nutty clouds just above the horizon. The ocean was rose, foaming like fizzy wine on the green and scummy sands lying a kilometre from T-Bay 6. Between the window and that strand lay the flat rocks of the lava flow the base had been anchored to, and there a solitary planter, like a giant steel beetle made like a do-little push-me-pull-you, with heads and manipulators at both ends of its body, was at work. It was pausing at hollows between the slabs to spew part of its load of that scummy sand from the beach, this laced with further organics, minerals, and a selection of newly genetically modified seeds for salt-resistant plants. "'I still wonder if we did the right thing,' she said. Saul stooped, his back aching, and picked up his EA suit helmet from the ledge below the window. Was there any right and wrong in this? It's like a proto-earth, said Tina. The algae blooms, and microfauna we found when we arrived would cert... 
and microfauna we found when we arrived would have eventually led to larger life forms there than on land. By seeding both the oceans and the seas, we put our own stamp on it. We probably destroyed something precious. Something precious in a few billion years, maybe. Saul shrugged and turned to head towards the airlock. I'm very much dependent on how you define precious. I consider our lives precious, and if we don't do this, we will die here. It was all he had left, really. He'd left most of his mind behind on his ship, and now even his viral genetic fix was failing. He was growing old, dying. His legacy would be a terraformed world the long sleepers could walk out on, and to begin their lives anew. He felt he owed them that. Tina followed him. But what right do we have to interfere? Saul rounded on her. He had intended to remain calm, just run through the final check and not end up in another debate about the morality of what they were doing, not end up going round and round in their discussions of the meaning of it all. He was getting tired of the growing number of all sleepers, those who advocated closing themselves up in cold coffins until human civilization reached this far out to release them into some future utopia, giving up, in other words. So, tell me, Tina... When did you start believing in God? he asked. She was taken aback, her mouth opening and closing like those modified trout being bred for the inland lakes. I don't believe in God. That's primitive. Oh, I see. Saul gazed at her with pretend puzzlement. So what's all this talk about our right to interfere? It strikes me that rights are something granted by someone higher up. He stabbed a finger towards the ceiling. And the only higher-ups I've thus far seen in this region of the space are the Grayson. And the only right they were granted is to die quickly rather than screaming in a yig-worm burrow. Saul turned and stepped into the corridor leading to the rear airlock of Base 6, pausing for a second to peer into one of the cryogenics rooms at twenty cold coffins arrayed around the wall. Two hundred days ago, he, Tina and seventeen others had woken in a room just like this on the other side of the base, whilst one occupant had died some time in the past. His coffin, truly earning the term, before they took him outside, found some soft ground inland and buried him, thus making a small addition to the Terran biomass of Malden. Right there was a demonstration of how far he had fallen. He who had once been able to clone replacement bodies for people and transfer minds between bodies like computer files could not keep something alive in a simple cold coffin. Upon their arrival on the surface, it had soon become evident that they had two choices. Struggle to survive using hydroponics in the enclosed bases or sleep in the cold coffins from their landing craft whilst the terraforming of Malden progressed. He had chosen the latter and still had enough power to force the decision. So they had rested in cold stasis for a century whilst the oceans began filling with Terran life. Then the century after that, and again and again, Saul had woken many more times than the others, constantly tweaking the plan, ensuring everything kept on track. In Earth years, he was 170 now, whilst Tina here was just into her forties. Bring your case. We've got work to do, he said, dragging his gaze away from the cold coffins, and together they stepped into the airlock at the end of the corridor. Upon waking this time, Saul had issued his orders, and the few who'd woken with him had set to work assembling and testing the first planter robots, and rejigging the robot factories and auto-maintenance bays, utilising metals and other materials stockpiled over the best part of 2,000 years of automated mining and manufacturing. 
and now the new system was nearly self-sustaining. Just a little more checking, and he would be sure. Then it would be time to head back to cold sleep, perhaps for him, for the last time. He stepped out of the airlock and gazed across a rocky plain to distant mountains, and noted how the greenery was now predominant. Using the rich inorganic sand and the proto-soil from the coastlines, the robots had spread their planting inwards over 300 kilometres, and the blooms from two of the bases had already met up and melded. Within another hundred days, the entire continental landmass would be rimmed with green. Also, with the genetically modified algae and seaweeds in the oceans rapidly heading towards critical mass, it seemed likely that by the end of that time period, there will be enough oxygen content in the air to begin introducing small land-going fauna, though of a highly modified kind. But they did not need to stay awake for that. He just needed this last check, this last glimpse into a computer world he had once mastered, and now found killing difficult. Jason and the others are on their way in, said Tina. He glanced over to where she was pointing and watched the approaching ATV, with its train of enclosed trailers worming its way down the rough coast road. Jason Fitch and the other seventeen he had woken had finished relocating mining equipment to a copper deposit up the coast. The stats looked good, and hopefully that operation was the last tweak they needed. He grimaced, turned away. The lander lay half a kilometre from the base. Saul gazed at the huge chunk of hardware and again wondered why he hadn't had it taken apart and used, and why he kept the mainframe there rather than relocating it to the base. It wasn't as if there was anywhere they could fly to from Malden now. The wreckage of the Vardalet still created the occasional meteor shower even now. After a moment, he realised he was procrastinating and set out at a vigorous pace for the lander, Tina hurrying to catch up with him. The lander smelt of time, nostalgia, regret. With Tina dogging his footsteps, Saul walked through the cargo bay, then passenger compartment to the control room located behind the cockpit. He entered, gazed around the interior for a moment, remembering his last time in here when he had nearly died, when the medic undertaking Tina's present duties had needed to restart his heart. He walked over and plumped himself down in the chair before the main console, paused reflectively before reaching underneath the console to flick on the power switch, remembering a time long ago when he had thought he would never need to touch a button or a switch again. His mind had been vast back then back when he had been able to individually programme a thousand robots all at once, or calculate the vectors of every piece of rubble in a solar system. He had been a demigod, who had mastered both mind and matter, who at will could build anything, even including human bodies and minds. Now he was an old, dying man. How the mighty had fallen! The computers booted up all around him, the screen before him scrolling code he'd once been able to run in his mind. In fact, build in his mind in fractions of a second, but which was now just a blur to him. You don't have to do this, Tina warned. Yes, he said, but any other way would require me waking up twenty more people and a further hundred days of computer time. Was that really the truth? Surely that was better than risking his life like this? No. He realised why he did this, why he could never leave it alone. He wanted it back. He wanted back everything he had lost. There was always a chance that the bio-interface in his skull had made new connections, that some of the hardware had self-repaired, that he could once again be the godlike Alan Saul he had been. That was worth the risk. In fact, 
Everything else was worth zero in comparison. He reached up and dug a fingernail into the nub of the synthetic flesh covering the terrogate socket in his skull, then eyed the coil of optic cable already plugged in at one end into the console before him. Get your drugs, he instructed. Whilst he sat patiently, she connected up a saline drip, then began injecting a specially designed cocktail of drugs into the line. The balance had to be just right, the enhancers and consciousness expanders to help him deal with something that had once been so easy. Drugs for the shock, for the inevitable cerebral bleeds, to deal with his reaction to the odd compounds his damaged cerebral hardware issued when it powered up. Tina also began attaching monitoring pads, skin stick scanners, and began to set up her induction cauterizer and heart simulator. She hoped she would have no need of these, but knew it likely he would suffer near-terminal or very final damage this time. The drugs kicked in, and suddenly the code on the screen began to make perfect sense. Sure, that was the feed from Base 2, where a million species of genetically modified insects were held in chemical stasis. He was ready. Time to plug in. He inserted the optic into the socket in his skull. It opened to him. All eight bases, all the automated factories, all the robots, all the artificial womb houses, the recombinant factories, the cams and scanners and the assessors of life. He saw it whole, entire, knew there was enough redundancy in the system and that it would work. In a hundred years' time, when sleepers here woke again, they will be able to walk outside and breathe the air. Flowers will be in the process of being pollinated by bees. Whole ecosystems of rotifers and nematodes will be building soil, and the planter robots undergoing an automatic reconfiguration will be releasing the first land-growing reptiles, amphibians, and small animals. And small mammals. Every sparrow that falls. Then there was something else focusing its attention on him. Something numinous, just out of reach, immense, and possessing a complexity he couldn't fathom. He had sneeringly asked Tina if she believed in God, yet now, in this moment, he felt the presence of God was something he could not deny. He remembered in this moment that every time he had done this before, he had experienced the same feeling, and then, on his return to his failing body, forgotten it all. No. No, there is no God. This was just an artefact, just electrostimulation of those parts of the brain related to religious experience. This was something people had learned about more than a thousand years ago, back on Earth. All good. He croaked, holding up his thumb to Tina, and then found he couldn't get his breath. The next thing he knew, the world died, and he was back in a suffering old body with Tina leaning over him to cut his throat, pushing in a tracheotomy tube. He breathed, wished he hadn't, wished she hadn't enabled him to. Then he faded. Please, no, don't let me be alive. But there was no doubt, because Saul recognised the feel of the pads and the straps holding him upright in a cold coffin, the bite of the tubes into his arms, the horrible ache of a body stabbed with a hundred needles, pumped of antifreeze and filled with warm blood, and the saccharine taste the drugs left in his mouth. He opened gummy eyes but couldn't see out of the glass, whose exterior seemed to be crusted with some layer. However, enough light was being admitted for him to gaze down at his withered body. No one was here to open the door for him, so that meant the automatics had woken him. Something must have gone wrong that required his attention. He flexed his hands, and when he at last felt confident enough, 
he took a couple coag plasters from the dispenser, pulled the tubes from his arms and pressed the plasters into place. Next he turned his attention to the straps, which he struggled with because the easy releases were jammed. Also the support pads hadn't retracted and he needed to manually wind them back. He slumped in the coffin, grabbing for the door handle on his way down and then spilled out onto the floor. Something was badly wrong. The floor was filthy, brown and red debris crunched under his hands. Then his fingers closed on something solid, which he picked up and peered at. It took him a little while to register what he held. A twig. Next, with his vision clearing, he gazed with complete puzzlement at the surrounding drifts of leaves, then in astonishment at a creature, like a chinchilla peering at him with beady black eyes before nonchalantly bouncing its back legs off a wall before speeding away. He heaved himself to his feet, and on autopilot walked over to a locker, kicking aside leaves that seemed bewildering of a familiar shape to expose the white mycelia of fungi. He struggled to open the door, meanwhile observing that the coag patches weren't working so well because his arms were bleeding. Finally, managing to get the locker open, he pulled out his clothing and it crumbled in his hands. How long? No screens of consoles were lit in here, and the only sign of any power was a dim light inside the cold coffin, and that was fading. He headed over to the door, pulled it further open, and then stepped out into a corridor strewn with more debris, gazed along it to the airlock, which stood open. At least a hundred years had to have passed, else he would have suffocated by now. He advanced, but then stubbed his toe against something, and then paused down to peer at a human skull. They had everything, said an eerily familiar voice. They had the technology, they had the resources, and they had the world I gave them. Who is that? he snapped, checking behind him. No one nearby, but then it seemed he was now playing a game with himself, because he just knew the voice lay inside the skull, and it was his own. He walked to the airlock and stepped out, and saw that old ginkgo trees now blocked his view of the sea. He paused for a moment and glanced back into the base, but did not have the heart to search it, for he knew it would be empty, and so stepped out into dappled sunlight. The sky had changed, now pink straighter with blue, great puffy blimps of clouds sailing overhead. The walk to the shore was not so far, but by the time he reached it he was wheezing and his body felt as if someone had beaten it from head to foot. A nail of pain jabbed at his temple, his teeth ached, he was old. At first, they left you on ice because they thought you might not survive another waking, said the voice. They decided to wait until their medical technology had improved, until they could make you a clone body, then figure out the wiring in your skull so as to download you to it. They got there with that tech. But by then they were already breaking into factions who were building up their populations with clones programmed for obedience and manoeuvring for power. It started with the robots which they sent against each other and the clones and finally a nasty brain-rotting virus. After that, the survivors just couldn't pick themselves back up. They died, Saul asked, wearily lowering himself to a flat rock to gaze out over the beach and across the ocean. No, there's a scattering of tribes in the area, replied the voice and one of those tribes has even reinvented the bow and arrow. Saul's head nodded. He dozed and abruptly snapped awake again. How had time passed so quickly? The sea now lay under twilight before him and the stars were coming out above. He glanced aside at a figure standing just along the beach from him, instantly recognisable, with his acid white hair, red eyes and black vacuum combat suit. But of course, this was as much the real item as old Saul sitting here on this rock. A man, or rather a demigod, 
who can make a clone of himself and load some portion of his mind to it to serve some specific end, did not himself need to travel down to the surface of the world. He would be there, in that steel sphere on the ocean horizon, that vast ship poised in orbit around Malden. So my memories of the Grayson destroying the Vardaleks are false, said Saul, gesturing to the distant ship. Of course, replied the projection of the real Alan Saul. We dealt with the Grazen long ago, but you and the others here with you needed the motivation for success and succeed you did. The projection waved a pale hand at their surroundings. Old man Saul, on the beach, glanced around at the trees, down at the strand now scattered with handfuls of glittery shells, out at the sea where something swirled and splashed. Yes, they had succeeded in building a living world, and then just fucked up as ever. Were they clones too? the old man asked. No, they were the original crew who wanted to get away from me and start something new. I adjusted their memories to give them a greater chance of success. What arrogance! thought the old man, recognising it as his own. What now? he asked. You are dying, replied the projection. It's time for you to come home. I'm a piece of you that you want back. In essence, old Saul felt too tired to be angry about that. Okay, he said. The figure strode towards him, stretching out a hand. The old man reached out to clasp that hand, a symbolic act as his body dined and his mind transferred. He immediately found himself falling into the twilight far and deep, hauled in by something luminous and dissolving in it. On the horizon, the giant sphere of the Vardlek seemed to blink like a steel eye and receded. <laughs> And again, copyright is Neil's. Neil, thank you so much. Big, big thank you. And Amory, what can I say? Again, just pulled it out of the hat. Thank you so much. So don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. They can help you or your business by supplying a managed off-site backup of the essential data to services located in the UK. If you work in Penzance, Wick, San Francisco or Johannesburg, then Octagon Technology... Hosted Exchange Server is for you. There you go. What can I say? Big thank you. And that is the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will come back for more. I hope you will go over and check out my YouTube channel, talking about all the greats, you know what I mean? And picking the five worst books out there. I've done that one and other things. You know, I've done the... We can remember it for you wholesale, the, the kind of anthology collection that's up there as well. So now we're kind of starting to build up a little kind of bit of back, you know, so there's not just kind of one there. There's a, nice, there's a nice like selection of it there over there. So please pop over there and check that out. So until next week, I would just like to say a good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. 
You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.